Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. My dear sister, most cordially welcome to me was your kind letter of May the 4th, yet I have not found time since my arrival to thank you for it or even to write a line to any friend. My journey was as pleasant as my thoughts upon what was past and my anticipations of what was to come would permit it to be. On Wednesday morning, about 25 miles from town, I was met by my friend who, claiming his own, I quitted my own carriage and took my seat by his side. We rode on to Bristol, where I had previously engaged a dinner, and there, Upon the banks of the Delaware, we spent the day, getting into the city at sunset. On the day that John Adams delivered his special address to Congress about the recent tensions with France, First Lady Abigail Adams sat down to write her sister Mary Cranch about her journey from Quincy to Philadelphia. The journey there had not been an easy one for Abigail. Long before she hit the road, she had had to turn to the practical matter of finding someone to run the family's farm while she and John were in Philadelphia. As had happened many times during John's public career, his attention was distracted, and Abigail had to take care of business, something that modern historians credit her with doing better than John, as she not only kept the family going, but also made plans for long-term financial security while John's considerations were turned elsewhere. However, her timetable for traveling to Philadelphia shrunk shortly after John's inauguration, as he wrote to her, asking her to come immediately. She finally managed to find a family that would run the farm while they were gone, but two days before she was scheduled to leave, a tragedy held up her departure. John's mother, Susanna Boylston Adams, passed away at the age of 89. Abigail remained in Quincy to arrange her mother-in-law's funeral. Then, at the end of April, Abigail and her niece, Louisa Smith, departed from Quincy bound for the nation's capital. They would stop at the home of Abigail's daughter, Nabby, on the way, where she learned of the financial and emotional distress the Smith family was in. Nabby's husband, William, had left the family at their home in East Chester, New York, on the excuse of going to look after real estate interest, but Nabby had no clue where he was. Abigail was also able to check in on her son, Charles, and his wife, Sally Smith Adams, on the way, and found them in much better circumstances. The journey hit hard times between New York and Philly as heavy rains, quote, turned the clay roads into a sea of mud. And when Abigail finally arrived in Philadelphia, she spent two days in bed recovering. Finally, though, at long last, John and Abigail were reunited. And it's on this happy note that I welcome you to the Presidencies of the United States. I'm your host, Jerry Landry. Special thanks to Sarah Tanksavala for providing the intro quote for this episode. Sarah is the host of the American History Podcast, which, like this podcast, is a chronological look at American history. But Sarah starts with the establishment of the Jamestown Settlement and has been going colony by colony, examining how these disparate groups ultimately came together into one nation. You can find her podcast by going to American History Podcast, all one word, dot net, or by doing a search for American History Podcast anywhere fine podcasts can be found.
Abigail's arrival in Philadelphia was just in time, as Adams would need her support to get through the trying times ahead. He had gone through the possibilities and had received advice from fellow New Englanders Henry Knox and Elbridge Gary, among others, to send Jefferson as part of a bipartisan commission to negotiate with France. However, as we discussed in episode 2.3, it didn't make sense to send Jefferson in the off chance that something should happen to Adams and the vice president be needed to assume the presidency. Adams was thinking, though, that a bipartisan commission was still a good idea. He put forward the idea behind closed doors of nominating his friend Elridge Gary, who was known to be a supporter of Jefferson. But the proposal was quickly rebuffed by his Secretary of State, Timothy Pickering, and other arch-federalists. Before we go any further, let me provide a quick explanation to this new term which will be used quite frequently in this series. An arch-federalist, as the term will be used in this podcast, is someone who identified as a federalist but was more closely aligned to former Secretary of the Treasury Alexander Hamilton than to the idea of the Federalist Party in general, and Adams in particular. This term will be used interchangeably with the term high federalist, and the distinction between the two types of federalists will become more clear as time goes on. But even at this point, it is fair to say that Pickering and some other federalists had more loyalty to Hamilton than they did to Adams, and thus can be classified as arch-federalists, though contemporaries would not have known them as such. With that understood, let's move on. Greetings from Evergreen Podcasts. We're rolling out a listener survey, and we want to hear from you. The information in the survey will help us gather statistics and in turn make our shows more appealing to advertisers. I know most people don't like ads, but this is one of the only ways our shows make money and help keep their lights on. We promise it will only take a few minutes, but the impact on our podcasts will be tremendous. As a token of our appreciation, we'll randomly select one lucky participant each month to win an exclusive merchandise package from Evergreen Podcasts. Head to evergreenpodcast.com slash listener survey to help a show and possibly get some free stuff for doing so. We can't thank you enough for the support. Now back to the show. On May 31st, Adams submitted three names to Congress to serve as the diplomatic commission to France. Since he was already France adjacent, Charles Coatsworth Pinckney was nominated as one of the commissioners. But to join Pinckney, Adams nominated Francis Dana of Massachusetts and John Marshall of Virginia. We've already met Marshall in this podcast, so let's take a quick moment to look at Francis Dana. Besides being from Massachusetts, Dana was well known to Adams as he had served as his secretary during his initial diplomatic mission to Europe to negotiate a peace treaty with Britain during the Revolutionary War. At this point, Dana was serving as Chief Justice of the Massachusetts Supreme Court and quickly sent word to decline the nomination due to ill health. Thus, Adams fell back to the person he had initially wanted to appoint and submitted Elbridge Gary's name for approval. As noted by historian Ralph Adams Brown, quote, Gary was more volatile and perhaps less cautious than Dana. Yet even with this substitution, the commission was an unusually able group. It represented a diverse spectrum of political views and an equally wide geographical range. Adams was well aware of all the difficulties and dangers that might confront his mission, and he took all possible precautions to guarantee its success. By early June, the Senate had confirmed the three commissioners, and preparations started to be made for their departure, with Marshall making his way to Philadelphia to meet with Adams, while Gary prepared to set sail from Boston. Meanwhile, Congress launched into a debate over Adams' other proposals from his special message, and a contentious debate it was. 
Historian John Furling notes that, quote, the first mention of the word secession occurred in the tempestuous congressional debate that followed the president's speech. In this instance, a Western spokesman advised New England to leave the Union and construct its own fleet, if it must have one, but not to ask the nation's farmers to pay for the Navy. Nothing doing, though. Congress did approve bills to add 12 frigates to the Navy and to strengthen coastal fortifications. As usual, the wariness over the idea of a standing army led Congress to defeat a bill to strengthen the army to a force of 15,000. Still, the strengthening of the Navy was a step in the right direction in the mind of the administration. To be honest, Adams hadn't been behind the army enlargement to begin with. As he explained in a letter to Elbridge Gary in May, given the conditions in Europe, quote, Where is it possible for France to get ships to send 30,000 men here? What would 30,000 men do here? For Adams, strengthening the Navy was much more important to national security, and the city of Philadelphia had already been witness on the afternoon of May 10th to the launch of the USS United States, one of the new naval frigates that had been approved during his predecessor's administration. For months, prominent officials, including outgoing President Washington and the new President Adams, had gone by the shipyards to see the final work being done on the ship. And though Adams had missed the launch in order to meet Abigail as she arrived from Quincy, crowds had gathered at the waterfront, quote, lining the wharfs, clamoring over the rooftops, craning their necks from every patch of unoccupied grass. Some reports put the crowd at more than 30,000. With the launch of the United States, the nation took a step towards becoming a naval power. In the run-up to its launch, though, an event occurred which augured ill for the future. Benjamin Franklin Bosch, the editor of the anti-administration Aurora General Advertiser, had gone on the afternoon of April 5th to see firsthand the progress on the ship, as so many other notable Philadelphians had done. However, when he got to the quarterdeck, quote, someone struck a bell, and at the signal, some 12 or 15 of the workmen came upon the deck and launched into a violent physical attack. Friends who had accompanied him were finally able to pull Bosch from the yard and take him home where he spent the next two days in bed. The organizer of the attack had been the son of the Philadelphia shipwright responsible for the ship's construction, a man described by historian Ian Toll as, quote, an unabashed Federalist partisan. With Bosch's beating, the partisan tensions entered a new phase, and Bosch would not be the last victim of partisan physical violence in the Adams presidency. At around the same time, a member of the U.S. Senate was implicated in a major scandal. William Blount had been elected as one of the first two senators from Tennessee upon that state's attaining statehood in 1796. He had been a prominent political leader in the area for a while and had heavily invested in land. However, in the course of playing the various factions with an interest in the region against one another, Blount had invited the British and the Cherokee to join in a scheme to expel the Spanish from Louisiana and Florida. Rumors were already flying that the Spanish were considering returning part of Louisiana to France, and the last thing that was needed was yet another European power, especially France, on the U.S.'s back door. However, many would argue that a British takeover of the possessions was just as undesirable. But still, the conspiracy proceeded in the shadows as 1796 went into 1797. Blount wrote a letter about this scheme to James Carey on April 21st, and it soon found its way into the hands of Secretary of State Pickering, who turned it over to Adams. 
Adams then promptly made the letter public and handed it over to the Senate for that body to determine how to proceed in addressing the scheming of one of its body in international affairs. Not only would Blount be expelled from the Senate, the first federal official to face impeachment charges since the beginning of the government under the Constitution, but the incident being made public also threatened U.S. relations with Britain. Secretary of State Pickering had confronted British Minister to the U.S. Robert Liston about the scheming and had attempted to convince Adams to keep it quiet to no avail. Liston was able to counter by making public a letter from British Foreign Secretary Lord Grenville expressing his disapproval of the plan. Though the letter had arrived too late to keep Liston from getting involved in the Blount conspiracy, it was enough to quell the public outcry against Britain for the time being. Besides, another drama was developing on the domestic front of the political landscape that garnered the attention of contemporaries. In June, James Callender's History of the United States for 1796 was released, and while it was full of previous charges of political wrongdoing against Hamilton during his tenure at the Treasury, two interesting new points appeared in the pamphlet series. First, Callender was citing letters from James Reynolds and Jacob Klingman, letters that had been in the possession of Frederick Muhlenberg, Abraham Venable, and James Monroe, the three members of Congress who in late 1792 had confronted Hamilton about Klingman's allegations of Hamilton's misconduct. Likewise suspicious was the fact that the pamphlet series had included a new, more personal charge against Hamilton, that he had committed adultery. He had confessed this to Muhlenberg, Monroe, and Venable when they had confronted him in order to disprove that he was guilty of any professional malfeasance, and the three men had sworn that they would keep it a secret. Yet here it was, now in print. On July 8th, Hamilton had a letter printed in the Gazette of the United States in which he admitted that the letters that had been cited in the pamphlet series were authentic, but argued that, quote, they were the contrivance of two of the most profligate men in the world to obtain their liberation from imprisonment for a serious crime by the favor of party spirit. We now know that John Beckley, the clerk of the House of Representatives, had been given the documents involved in the investigation to make a copy for Hamilton, and that, while he had done so, he also made copies which had been sent on to Democratic-Republican leaders Jefferson and Madison. Likewise, Monroe later admitted that the original documents which he was given responsibility for hanging on to had been, quote, deposited with a friend, a friend who Hamilton biographer Ron Chernow felt was most likely Jefferson. Monroe had also included in an essay published a month after their confrontation of Hamilton, quote, how much it is to be wished that Hamilton would exhibit himself to the public view, that we might behold in him a living monument of that immaculate purity to which he pretends and which ought to distinguish so bold and arrogant a censor of others. While not a revelation of Hamilton's secret, Chernow interprets it as a coded message to Hamilton that he should watch his step as Monroe had something to hang over him. Monroe biographer Harry Ammon interprets this sentence as a warning that Monroe knew that Hamilton had included text from a confidential government letter in an essay he had written, but the timing does leave one to wonder. Without regard, it is easy to see how Hamilton might reach the conclusion that Monroe was responsible for the secret getting out. Conveniently enough for a confrontation, the Monroes arrived in Philadelphia on June 27th. However, it would not be Hamilton waiting on the dock, but rather Vice President Jefferson, Representative Albert Gallatin, and former Senator Aaron Burr. 
Given the current anti-French sentiment flying about in the halls of power, they went on board the ship to get what information they could from Monroe about the situation in France before he could even disembark. Because of the special session of Congress, many Democratic-Republican leaders were on hand for Monroe's return, and a public dinner was thrown in his honor at Eller's Hotel, with Jefferson notably in attendance, and with Monroe having the opportunity to defend his record directly to 50 or so congressional Democratic-Republicans, along with other party leaders, and assert that he had worked on his diplomatic mission, quote, to preserve friendly relations between the two republics, i.e., the U.S. and France, a task at once close to his heart and fully in accord with his instructions. Jefferson's presence at the dinner meant that the attendees did not overly praise the French or condemn Adams and the Federalists, but it can be imagined that some strategizing about message took place at the event. Before Monroe could get enmeshed too much in the Democratic-Republican political scheme, he received a letter from none other than Alexander Hamilton. Hamilton had written to Monroe, Muhlenberg, and Venable, asking them to help to publicly clear up some of the details of their December 1792 meeting that Callender, in his pamphlet series, had distorted. Monroe, however, was preparing to leave Philadelphia for New York to visit with his in-laws and wanted to have a chance to check in with the other two before responding. Unbeknownst to Monroe, Venable and Muhlenberg had responded rather quickly to Hamilton's letter, So when Monroe's response failed to arrive, Hamilton wrote to him on July 10th, requesting a meeting the next morning. As described by Ron Chernow, this meeting, quote, was to be one of the most emotional encounters of Hamilton's tumultuous life. The account that we have of the meeting comes from David Gelston, a New York merchant friend who Monroe invited to be his witness at the encounter. Likewise, Hamilton invited his brother-in-law, John Church, to come with him to Monroe's lodgings. Galston described Hamilton as being, quote, very much agitated from the time he arrived, and Hamilton went into what was described as a monologue about the December 1792 meeting and his expectation that his letter of the 5th would receive, quote, an immediate answer, as it was on, quote, so important a subject in which his character and the peace and reputation of his family were so deeply interested. Monroe asked for an opportunity to answer, but Hamilton started questioning him about the documents that had been given to Monroe for safekeeping. Monroe assured him that they were with a Virginia friend and that he had not leaked them, nor had any intention of doing so. But Hamilton was not satisfied and stated that Monroe's, quote, representation is totally false. Monroe called Hamilton a, quote, unquote, scoundrel. Hamilton said that he would meet Monroe, quote, like a gentleman on the dueling field, and the two nearly came to fisticuffs right there, with only Church and Galston holding them apart. Galston managed to walk everything back and get Hamilton to agree to give Monroe an opportunity to confer with his two colleagues, Muhlenberg and Venable, before responding to Hamilton. Now, I won't go into all of the back and forth of the exchange between Hamilton and Monroe, as that is beyond the scope of this podcast. But there are a couple of interesting points in this exchange to note. First, in a critical year when the nation was teetering on the brink of war, two of its most prominent political figures were bickering over a public dispute. They very nearly ended up dueling, but Monroe would enlist the assistance of a Democratic Republican from New York to avoid the confrontation. In a great irony of history, it would be Aaron Burr who would help Alexander Hamilton avoid a duel with Monroe in the summer of 1797. Though he would continue on with his private dispute with Monroe, 
Hamilton also felt it important to address the charges against him publicly. Starting on July 31st, he had an advertisement published in the Gazette of the United States for his forthcoming pamphlet to outline his defense, and the pamphlet would be released on August 25th. As we've seen in modern times, politicians throughout history, when confronted with allegations of wrongdoing, typically take the approach to deny, 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 then, if there's no getting out of it, apologizing and begging forgiveness. While Hamilton would deny the allegations of malfeasance while serving in his professional capacity as Secretary of the Treasury and claim quite accurately that these false claims were being lodged against him as part of a partisan factional attack, he would, in his pamphlet, admit to his affair with Maria Reynolds. As noted by Chernow, quote, he was prepared to sacrifice his private reputation to preserve his public honor. Thus, he described in detail his initial meeting with Maria Reynolds and how that interaction had progressed to something else. It seems that even his wife Eliza may not have been aware of the affair, nor of his plans to go public with it, as she had departed for her parents' home in Albany to have their sixth child, who was born on August 4th. Despite the very public humiliation, not only would Eliza remain with her husband, but she would remain one of the staunchest and most vigorous defenders of his legacy after his passing. Despite her forgiveness, the stain on Hamilton's character would remain from this point forward, and his enemies would use it as a new weapon against him. The spring and summer would see the nation's merchants facing a sharp plummet in sales. Richard Chu, in his article on what has been dubbed the Panic of 1797, focuses on the issue from the perspective of merchants in Baltimore, Maryland, but the economic recession would be felt by folks from different sectors of the economy up and down the eastern seaboard. As noted by Chu, though, the financial downturn did not lead to a run on banks, as we'll see in future panics, and the ill effects were mostly felt in coastal areas as, quote, the overlapping webs of credit and market exchange stretching into the countryside, which was to come in the 19th century, were as of yet still in their beginning stages. Though Chu and other historians attribute the spark for the downturn as being the suspension of specie payments by the Bank of England, as discussed in episode 2.4, Nicholas Curat and Tyler Watts published a paper in 2015 in which they explained their theory that, quote, credit expansion initiated by the Bank of the United States in the early 1790s led to, quote, a speculative investment bubble in real estate and capital-intensive manufacturing and infrastructure projects, which drove specie out of the country and ultimately resulted in an economic correction that was the late 1790s economic recession. In layman's terms, Curat and Watts argue that Washington and Hamilton's financial scheme created a bubble which burst as Washington was handing the presidency off to Adams. As evidence, they point to Benjamin Rush, noting that 150 businesses in Philadelphia alone had failed in late 1796, and question how Rush could have noted a spike in business failures in December 1796 if the economic downturn was caused by actions of the Bank of England in February 1797. Without regard to the cause, the reality on the ground was that the money supply had begun to fall in 1795 and prices of goods, which had been rising with a stronger economy through the 1790s, began to drop around the end of 1796 and early 1797, causing a drop in per capita GDP growth in 1797. The drop can be seen in the figures for imports and exports that year, which dropped by $6 million in the value of total imports and over $10 million in the value of total exports from the year prior. 
Despite political disputes and economic upheavals, despite personal and physical assaults, the business of the government proceeded on until July 10th, when Congress adjourned from the special session and its members dispersed across the nation. The Adamses would soon follow, departing from Philadelphia on July 19th on a trip back to their home in Quincy that took them two weeks total from door to door. It would only be later that they would learn that, while they were headed home, their oldest son had married Louisa Catherine Johnson on July 26th in England. But we'll explore that more in-depth when we get to John Quincy's pre-presidency. For the most part, the remainder of the summer and early fall would be restful for the president and the first lady. It was only on their way back to the capital city in October that they learned that Philadelphia was facing another deadly bout of yellow fever. As during the great epidemic of 1793, the government officials remaining in the city at the time had scattered to neighboring towns along with two-thirds of the citizenry of the city. John and Abigail would opt to stay with their daughter, Nabby, in East Chester, New York, and Chilla was safe for them to proceed. Nabby's husband, Colonel Smith, had still not returned, so one can only imagine the personal tension. Abigail appealed to Nabby to bring the children and join them in Philadelphia, but Nabby refused. Finally, in November, the all-clear came, and John and Abigail proceeded on to the president's house. In the town that they arrived back in, over 1,000 individuals had died in the epidemic. Only a fourth of the total fatalities in the 1793 epidemic, but still enough to leave nerves rattled. As with the previous epidemic, historians have noted a possible connection to the Caribbean as a ship had arrived in Philadelphia from Jamaica via Havana, Cuba, just prior to the beginning of the outbreak. Again, as with the previous outbreak, Adams had considered the idea of convening Congress outside of Philadelphia but the epidemic subsided in time for the 5th Congress to reconvene on November 13th. On the 22nd, Adams walked into Congress Hall and delivered his first annual message to Congress, in which he updated that body that the envoys had departed for France and asserting that, quote, whatever may be the result of this mission, I trust that nothing will have been omitted on my part to conduct the negotiation to a successful conclusion on such equitable terms as may be compatible with the safety, honor, and interest of the United States. There would be no lacking on the part of John, but rather on the man that Pinckney, Marshall, and Gary would be dealing with in Paris. For by the time the commission arrived, they would find that Charles-Francois Delacroix had been replaced as French foreign minister in favor of a man named Talleyrand. And Talleyrand was a man who felt that money talked when it came to diplomacy. We'll find out more about the reception the three diplomats received in Paris in an episode that I'd like to call One Hand Washes the Other, The XYZ Affair. Until then, thanks again to Sarah Tanksavala for providing this episode's intro quote. You can find a link to the American History Podcast on the show notes for this episode at presidencies.blueberry, that's B-L-U-B-R-R-Y dot com, as well as catch up on past episodes of this podcast. Should you have any questions, comments, or copies of Hamilton's defense lying around, you can send them my way through Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, or via email at presidenciespodcast, all one word, at gmail.com. As always, I thank you so much for listening. Take care, dear friends. Until next time. The Korean War has sadly been known as the Forgotten War, but half a century earlier, the United States was locked in a bloody conflict in Asia that's been all but erased from the history books. Hi, I'm Alex Hasty, the host of Ohio vs. the World, 
an American history podcast on the Evergreen Podcast Network. In our newest episode, we speak to experts about the Philippine-American War, America's first Asian counterinsurgency conflict. The heroes, the villains. We'll discuss President McKinley, Admiral Dewey, the vicious brutality of the fighting and the scandals and war crimes that nearly sunk Theodore Roosevelt's presidency. Check out our show, Ohio vs. the World, on the Evergreen Podcast Network for our new episode about America's most forgotten war. Now back to the show.